0: Let me tell you a story, podcast number eight. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom Some years ago. It was the age of wisdom. Never mind. Because it is
1: a truth universally acknowledged. You
0: you don't know about me without you.
2: Welcome to Let Me Tell You A Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve.
3: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You A Story. We're excited to have another guest reader today. Not sure how we lucked out to have two podcasts in a row with author readers. Must be because we're privileged to live in an area with plenty of literary talent.
0: Our friend Isaiah Silkwood is reading from his book that just came out, titled Of Pirates and Werewolves. Sounds exciting. Give us a sample, Isaiah.
1: Hey guys, thanks for having me. Of Pirates and Werewolves, Book 1. Begin, Book 1. Chapter 1. Fish-Eye, captain of the Runt Skimmer, squinted against the hurricane's torrent as he pulled on his oar, knowing, even in the face of danger, all was well now that he had secured his greatest treasure. Or had he? Captain Fish-Eye scanned the prow of the rowboat for the small chest of black gold. A mere seven ounces of the precious mineral traded for the value of a four-masted ship and her crew. Wokey the Shrimp sat at his side, pulling hard on the portside oar. His loyal first mate looked at him with worry-filled eyes. Fisheye couldn't let Shrimp down again. The makeshift sail had been ripped to tatters in the powerful gale, and the pieces were flapping in the wind, but the mast held firm. Fisheye shook his head at the roar of the sea. Without the chest of black gold, there would be no point in even trying to survive the storm. The black gold would buy them a real ship, a real crew, and a real chance at success in piracy. Without it, they had nothing, and Fisheye wasn't sure he could go back to being nothing. This was why he had to beat the weather, why he had to master the storm. Fisheye spotted the chest sitting precariously on the prow, where he had placed it at the start of their voyage. He reached for it. Before he could secure the chest, a massive wave picked up the runt skimmer and dropped her like a child drops stale, wormy bread for a fresh baker's loaf. He felt his stomach rise to his throat as the small boat plummeted downward, every muscle constricted as his body rose off of the rowing bench, weightless again. All the contents of the rowboat seemed to float in midair. A knot of fear formed in Fisheye's throat as he spotted the chest of black gold rise into the darkness. Hovering just above the gunwale. The boat smacked into the bottom of the wave. Fisheye's tailbone cra- ground into the rowing bench as a spiraling streak of pain flew up his spine. He buckled against the bottom boards, and shrimp toppled into him. Slumped against one another, he watched as the chest of black gold slammed against the gunwale and disappeared into the darkness. No! Fisheye shouted. The chest landed in the water with a dull slap on the surface, and for a moment rested there. Then, with a gush of bubbles, it sank. Fisheye dove after it, his face and arms splashing into the black water. He felt arms cinch around his calves as his hips slammed against the gunwale. Above him, shrimp grunted beneath the strain of his captain's weight. Fisheye grasped for the chest, feeling its wooden grains brush his fingertips, before another wave lifted the runt skimmer up and away from the treasure. The wave's force nearly pulled Fisheye into the churning sea, but Shrimp's hold was tenacious. Fisheye thought about kicking free and swimming after the gold, but fear set in. He struggled back above the surface of the sea and worked with Shrimp to regain his seat. Fisheye turned shame-filled eyes on Shrimp. How could he have been so utterly foolish as to not have secured their treasure when the voyage began? "'I'm sorry, Shrimp,' he mumbled." Wokey the Shrimp would forsake him as captain for sure. Shrimp looked at him, his face nearly white with shock. "'Don't worry about it, Cap'n. It be just a little gold,' he shouted over the tempest. "'Ye be more important than it.' "'Of course ye would say that, Shrimp,' Fish. I thought dejectedly, as he and his first mate leaned back on their oars again. It be just like ye to make a molehill out of a mountain, especially when the mountain be another failure o' mine.' Captain Fisheye, once a rich man, sat dejectedly on the run-down pier. Once rich, but only for a day. The hurricane, one of many that had riddled the summer seas of the Spanish Main that year, had changed everything. Floating just off the pier was his storm-battered runt skimmer. Its name epitomized what he thought of himself at the moment. Its physical condition expressed how his weary body felt. Why? Why had he placed the small chest of rare black gold on the rowing bench instead of in the cargo box at the stern? It was really too late to do anything about it now. The chance of having a real ship and a crew of more than his faithful first mate had been in his grasp, but all that was slipping away. He wasn't a real captain. He was a failure. I wasn't alone. Several men, all failures for even being there, sat on and near the docks of Hechos Es Nuevos a small island en route from the West Indies to the British colonies, but much nearer the West Indies. Though Nuevos had a good cove, the island was not large enough to support a significant population. Most good sailors avoided it, except when they wanted to restock their liquor supplies or sell some. It wasn't even a proper pirate state like the renowned Tortuga. It was just a slum. A slum bad enough that most residents, pirate or not, spent their time trying to barter away off of the island. "'Drifters and castaways,' Fish-Eye thought. "'Men like himself who had no real purpose in life "'but to accept its misfortunes, "'with a smile on their faces as if they appreciated it. "'Captain Fish-Eye's first mate, Wookie the Shrimp, "'stood mending the tattered sail of the Runt-skimmer. "'Shrimp wore a brown bandana that wrapped around his head "'and a small, aging, tiger-skin vest. "'From the thin brown belt to the raggedy-gray pantaloons, "'down to his sandaled feet,' Shrimp fit the financial description of most pirates. Broke. Shrimp dropped his thin arms down to his sides. Cap'n said Shrimp, in his high-pitched voice and unusual accent. Now that we got our dinghy fixed up from that hurricane, what are we going to do now? Do now? fish lifted his head out of his hands and looked at his shorter first mate. Shrimp, we be as good as sunk. We lost our only chance of happiness. We got, I think... Three pennies to our name?' Fisheye grimaced. "'Nothing's gonna change for the better. "'Fate would have it we got rich, "'and on the way to actually doing something with the riches!' "'Fisheye jabbed a thumb into his chest. "'I lost it in a hurricane!' "'His face sank back into his dirty hands. "'Providence must be playing a joke on us,' he mumbled. "'A breeze came up and ruffled Fisheye's shabby, sleeveless brown shirt. "'He was reminded of how bad their apparel had gotten.' From the waist down, Fisheye's grey pantaloons were just as bad as Shrimp's, if not more heavily patched at the knees. He wore the same type of shoddy sandals. Wrapped around Fisheye's head was a light blue bandana, and sitting atop was his black tricorn hat. The best thing about his wardrobe was a broad red sash that served as a belt around his waist. Fisheye had a short cutlass thrust through one side of the sash and a small flintlock pistol in the front. Shrimp climbed out of the boat and onto the pier his thin frame belying his energetic manner. "'Why, Cap'n, there ain't naught nop- but opportunities ahead of us. Why don't you go talk to Dex again? If there was any one on Hechos' Es Nuevos that'd know where a good score be, it'd be him!' Captain Fish-Eye looked up at Shrimp's confident face. Fish-Eye's self-confidence was in the gutter. "'Now can you still believe in me? The worthless captain whose fault it be that we lost the gold,' Fish-Eye thought. Aloud he said. "'That's just it, Shrimp.' Of all the islands to end up on, why'd we have to end up back here on this godforsaken one? This be where we started from when we left for the island of the black gold. Tis bad fortune to end up back in the same place we took off from, mate. Mind me, Shrimp, we was meant to stay here and rot. Fisheye reached up and pulled his tricorn down further on his head and to block out the sun's glaring light. We may as well just accept it. Shrimp turned thoughtful fish eye cast his eye over the other men on the dock. Two men, both looking rather desperate, were walking their way. The scent of the men's tattered clothes, looking worse for wear than even his and Shrimp's, drifted with the breeze to Fish-Eye's nose. They stunk of alcohol and filth. fish eye noted with suspicion that each man had a hand under his coat. They stopped about twenty feet away. The taller of the pair, who rose above Fish-Eye's five foot eleven inches, smiled politely at Fish-Eye and Shrimp. He opened his mouth to reveal a few teeth. "'Hello. We's couldn't help but overhear ye wantin' to rot and all. So we's decided to kill you, and takes your boat.' The shorter man chuckled and adjusted his grip on the weapon he held beneath his coat. Neither of them had drawn their weapons yet, but Fish-Eye was sure they had them. The taller continued, "'Unless, of course, ye you surrender yourselves and runs away to rot.' While the taller man had been talking, fish had watched Shrimp casually drop his hands so that they hung near his short, straight sword and small hunting knife in his belt. fish Eye dropped his left hand to the butt of his pistol, stuck deep into his broad red sash, and rested his right hand on his cutlass. He sighed. Shrimp was waiting patiently for his word. Pitiful captain I may be, fish Eye thought, but no one takes me ship, well, me dinghy, short of a battle. Fisheye turned a sullen face on the two assailants. All right, you win. He stood up with a hunch in his back and a droop in his shoulders. The men looked on in disbelief at Fisheye's caving demeanor. They quickly recovered and turned wicked smiles on him. Fisheye looked at Shrimp, who also showed a lot of surprise at his captain's actions. Winking at Shrimp, Fisheye smiled, and then whipped out his flintlock pistol. The pistol's hammer caught on the top edge of his sash and he lost his grip, sending the gun flying out of his hand to land on the pier in between the four of them. Fisheye's smile faltered. At the sound of the pistol hitting the wooden planking of the pier, several idle men, rambling about the docks, turned their heads in interest toward the confrontation. The taller man drew a knife and began to run forward in an attempt to snatch the gun. Fisheye also darted toward the gun and drew his cutlass in the process. Shrimp slipped his hunting knife out of his belt and snatched the flat of the blade with his right hand. He brought the weapon up above his shoulder and held it ready to throw, should the two men prove more than a match for his captain. Fisheye kept an eye out on the shorter assailant, who pulled his hand halfway out of his coat but stopped there, keeping the weapon hidden. Captain Fisheye attempted a roll for the gun, intending to snatch it and come up with the weapon pointed in the taller man's face. He misjudged his jump, hitting his shoulder hard on the pier and flopping onto his back. The taller man smiled. He closed in on the pistol and reached for it. Fishai raised his head in time to see Shrimp's hunting knife bury its tip into the wooden planking in front of the taller man's hand. The man faltered, giving Fishai enough time to get up and bring his cutlass to bear. He held it poised to strike the man's throat. The man grinned sheepishly and said, "As you was, governor, I didn't mean yez no arm!" He threw up his hands, knife still clenched in his fist, and began backing away. Fishai let him go. He smiled and bent down towards his pistol and shrimp's knife. The shorter man drew a pistol out into full view and aimed it at Fisheye. Don't take another step. His words were somewhat slow in coming, and Fisheye could see the stupor of alcohol in his eyes, which meant that things could go bad very quickly, whether he complied with the man or not. Fisheye stopped and held very still. The man smiled and blinked. Now that ye is holding still... He sighted unsteadily down the short barrel. Fisheye surmised that the man's intentions were far from honorable and dropped flat. The shorter man smiled and pulled the trigger. An unclimactic click reached Fisheye's ears. He hadn't realized that his eyes had been shut. Fisheye opened them and looked up at the drunken man. He was pulling the hammer back again and held his tongue at the corner of his mouth, as if it would make the process easier. Fisheye quickly snatched his pistol from before him and got to his knees. The man pulled the trigger again. This time he blinked as he did so. Another click sounded over the pier. Fish-Eye, feeling relieved and in control of the situation for the first time, rose casually to his feet. A large smile was on his face when he said, Shrimp? Shrimp responded immediately from right beside him. Hi, capping." Fish-Eye jumped slightly to see Shrimp so close. He cleared his throat and returned his attention to their assailants. The shorter man was still pulling the hammer back and firing blanks into them. The taller was behind his partner and slowly backing away. Fisheye raised his pistol at the retreating man. Make sure these men know that if they take another step backward, there'll be food for the cuttlefish. The taller man stopped retreating as Shrimp nodded and began to reiterate his captain's words. Hold it there, mate, or the captain will fill you full of lead, and he actually remembers to load his weapon. Fisheye allowed his smile to become more confident. He raised his eyebrows a couple of times for dramatics. Now, first mate, what would you call an attempt on me life amongst our crew? Shrimp pursed his lips and looked from fisheye to the two men standing about ten feet away. I would have to call it mutiny, capping. Fisheye nodded sadly. Aye, and what be the punishment for mutiny, first mate? Shrimp smiled. Oh, I know, capping. It be death by walking the plank, or being marooned, or being hanged. Fisheye nodded again, still keeping his pistol trained on the men before him. What say ye, mutineers, which death do ye choose? The taller man hastily raised his hands higher. We's never meant to do ye no harm, Mr. Cap'n, sir. We's just thought ye's was going to die anyway, and so's decided to help ye along. Fish-eye looked at Shrimp. Since the mutineers decided not to choose a fate for themselves, I give the choice to ye, first mate. Shrimp raised a finger. Death by marooning, Cap'n. fish nodded. That was a fitting punishment. I, Captain Fish-Eye, hereby maroon ye two mutinous crewmen to rot on this island of Hechos Es Nuevos until—' "'Help me out here, Shrimp. "'Until further notice.' "'Aye.' The taller of the men squinted, disbelieving Fish-Eye. He held his mouth partway open, as if he wanted to say something, but feared it would incriminate him further. The shorter man just pulled back the hammer again. Fish-Eye waved his pistol at them. "'Now shoo, and don't come back to the piers ever again.' The taller man grabbed the shoulder of his companion as the flint on the hammer struck the frizzin and created more useless sparks. He hauled him around and they made a hasty retreat. Fisheye sighed and put his pistol back into his sash. The breeze picked up a bit and began to ruffle his brown shirt and pantaloons. He looked around at the other outcasts, still loafing around the docks. They quickly lost interest in the conflict after its resolution had become evident. Fisheye put his cutlass back into the sash and he turned to Shrimp. "'I've changed me mind, Shrimp. Methinks I'll go have a talk with Dex. Anywhere be better than here. There's bound to be a good score out there somewhere.' Shrimp pulled the front edges of his small tiger-skin vest away from his bare ribs proudly. "'Hi, Cap'n. We be pirates. We don't give up that easy.' Fish-eye pressed his lips together and nodded in affirmation. Aye. We are actually pirates. I am actually a pirate captain,' Fish-eye thought." We ain't these hopeless souls sitting around this dock who have nothing to gain and everything to lose. We be pirates, with nothing to lose and everything to gain. Pull the cork, Shrimp, Fish-Eye said, but low enough that only his first mate could hear. Shrimp nodded, and his face took on a secretive air. He tiptoed over to the rent skimmer and dropped into it. Shrimp glanced around to make sure no one was looking. Seeing that the outcasts were going about their business of fishing and drinking away the last of their grog, He knelt down at the prow and pulled a fair-sized cork out of the dinghy's hull. The boat began to slowly fill with seawater. The old fraying rope that tethered the boat to the pier creaked as Shrimp climbed out of the runt skimmer. He walked over to Fish Eye, acting like nothing of
3: importance had happened.
0: Come in after his. I think
1: what you had was good enough there. Okay, that's sufficient. Fish Eye handed shrimp his knife, confident that no one would try to steal a boat with it. A-
3: you need to go. Sixteen-year-old Francesca Canetti shook her head. Mama, we're relying on you, baby. Mama clutched little Isabella to her movie star bosom, both of them shaking. I need you to be strong for me so I can take care of Bella. Twelve-year-old Bella had tears running down her cheeks. Mama pushed the closet door open. Be strong for me. Uncle Benny had shown up ten minutes ago. The look on his face made Francisca pull Isabella from the upstairs landing into Mama and Daddy's closet. Mama had been in there already. Go, Francesca. Franny's nightgown floated to her knees as she stood. Her legs wobbled, her spindly teenage knees knocked together, but she made it to the open double doors of her parents' bedroom. The shouting grew louder, Uncle Benny's voice was brittle, and Franny could picture his big cheeks jiggling as he yelled. "'Benito!' "'No, capo, do not do this!' "'We have no choice.' Her father's voice was subdued, but still full of an authority— which demanded respect and obedience, despite the fact his reputation alone commanded it. The decision is made, Filio. Franny stopped at the top of the stairs. Her feet sank into satiny carpet, and she gripped the mahogany rail. She should go back and tell Mama and Isabella everything was fine. Then I'm out, Uncle Benny said. No one leaves the family but the coward who turns his back on us. Ever since one of Papa's lieutenants testified against her grandfather, Franny's father had made it his personal mission to destroy any sign of dissent among his men. Franny was only 16, but she saw enough and heard enough to understand at least part of her father's operation and the problems he was having. It was why they hadn't been to Florida this year. Although the way her mom carried on about losing their family vacation, someone could well have been in a horrific accident which scarred them for life. When Mama was unhappy, everyone in the whole neighborhood knew about it. Franny turned to go tell Mama everything was fine. Well, that this was fine at least. Life was still life, and Franny still had to tell Papa she thought she might want to go to culinary school. He was pushing for her to start taking college classes so she could get a law degree and pass the bar as fast as possible. Because La Cosa Nostra in Baltimore needed a lawyer who would always put the family first. Too bad Franny would rather make cupcakes, but if she told Papa that, she'd end up a trophy housewife of one of his business associates. She was never going to escape. La Cosa Nostra might be his family, but it was going to absorb her whether she wanted it or not. Mama had chosen this life back when she fell in love with Papa, but what about Isabella? Franny's sister was barely 14, and already Papa's men were starting to eye her in a way that said the girl was too quickly becoming a young woman. The gunshot cracked like a firework. Franny jerked like she was the one who'd been shot. But was it Papa or Uncle Benny? Franny sprinted down the stairs. She slid across the marble tile of the entryway on her socks, through the archway to the living room, where her father stood, the smoking gun still in his hand, while Uncle Benny lay in a quickly spreading pool of blood. Franny gasped and covered her mouth with her trembling hand. Papa looked at her. The mobster had struck again. It was past midnight, but he still wore his black slacks and pale blue silk shirt. He stowed the gun in the back of his belt and motioned with his hand. Help me move the coffee table, Angela Mia. Franny didn't move. Uncle Benny shifted and gasped. Her eyes darted to where he lay, eyes open and fixed on her. Francisca, he coughed. Papa said, help me move the coffee table. She looked at him. Her father's eyes were full of impatience. We must take care of the body, Cara. You will help me. He wanted her to what? Franny looked aside and promptly threw up on the back of the couch. I do not have time for this. Papa was mad. Was he going to shoot her, too? Would he do so if Franny wasn't useful to him anymore? She took another step back, wiping her mouth at the back of her hand. Francesca! She turned and ran, pumping her arms and legs like she was running the 100 meters. Franny raced through the hall into the kitchen. But there was nowhere to go. Francesca, stop! The click of his shoes pursued her, and Franny circled through the dining room. His gun fired. A bullet slammed into her shoulder, and she stumbled, ice-cold fire burning down her arm. If she kept running, she was going to end up back in the living room with Uncle Benny. Where else could she go? The only other way out was the front. Franny ducked out the side door from the dining room and cut left, down the hall, to the front door. It exploded. Inward. Men in black fatigues, wearing helmets and carrying huge rifles, poured through the front door in a haze of smoke. Francesca Canetti skidded to a halt and slapped her hands over her ears to quell the shouting. The sound of her own screams tore through the haze in her mind. Her father. She spun around. Our men raced by, bumped her one way and then the other. With their guns pointed at her father, they yelled over and over until he set his hands on his head and lowered to his knees. Franny didn't think Nikolai Kineti had ever kneeled before any man in his life, and absolutely not since he'd been accepted into La Gosa Nostra. A gloved hand grabbed her shoulder, pulling her back. Pain whipped through her body and Franny collapsed to her knees. She looked up and saw FBI in the back of the vests. One crouched beside her. A woman. Everything is fine, Francesca. They knew her name? Franny looked into the eyes of the stranger and allowed the woman to pull her back to her feet. One of the men surrounding her father produced a piece of paper from his breast pocket. Nikolai Kinetti, we have a warrant to search all residences, offices, warehouses, and any other po- parcel of property owned by you or anyone in your immediate family. For what? Papa's voice was ice cold. Any information pertaining to your shipping company and its links to your offshore accounts in Belize and the transfer of said money to persons employed by the Hanera cartel, particularly in reference to gun running between Baltimore and the port of Veracruz on the Mexican coast. Special Agent Turner, the man with the search warrant, looked toward where the voice came from. Another agent strode out. He spoke low in Special Agent Turner's ear, but Franny heard him say, Benito, Canetti. Special Agent Turner turned back to her father. You killed your own brother? Her father's expression didn't change. He was attacking Francesca. He would have hurt her. Papa was going to use her to save himself? She didn't know why. She was surprised. Of course he was going to sa- use her to save himself. That was all he was ever going to do. It was like a switch flicked inside her. The wo- woman agent beside her said, Why don't you come with me, hun?" It wasn't a question. Franny tore her gaze from her father and let the female fed leader into the kitchen. She perched on a stool for two seconds before bounding to the sink and dry heaving into it. She heard the agent get water from the fridge. The woman handed the glass to Franny along with a paper towel, acting like she cared. Mostly, Franny figured it was the lesser of two evils. She didn't want to be in the room with her father and his relentless, twisting lies. These FBI agents weren't much better. No government person or cop had ever done Francesca Canetti any favors. Want to tell me what happened? The pain in her shoulder registered. It stung like crazy. Her nightshirt was ripped and blood was dripping down her elbow. Frenny pressed the paper towel to her shoulder and shut her eyes before doing the very thing her father had always told her not to do. She told someone else family business. When she got to the part where the agents had rushed in the front door, Franny opened her eyes. The kitchen was brighter than before. The weight that seemed to always lie on her shoulders had receded, allowing her to straighten fully, to stand tall. The swinging door wished open, and the mail agent looked beyond Franny to his colleague. Out of the corner of her eye, Franny saw her nod, and then she stepped away. I'll get someone to come and look at your shoulder. This agent in charge, the one whose name was Turner, waited until the woman had left and then said, Your father is a bad man, Francesca Canetti. His face was serious, but there was warmth in his eyes. Maybe he, can, maybe he counseled the daughters of mafia captains on a regular basis. It was more likely he only said what he had to to get the job done. She'd seen his type before. All this man wanted was to see her father in jail. He didn't care at all about what would become a Mama and Izzy. What were they going to do when they found Mama and Izzy in the closet? What if they hurt them on accident? Franny ran for the stairs. The agent caught her, his thick arm banding around her waist. Let me go. You're not leaving. Stop struggling or you'll hurt yourself more. I have to get them. They're upstairs in the closet. He set her down, but didn't let her go. Your mother and sister? They better not get hurt. He didn't seem impressed by her bravado, but she didn't care. He said, if you're worried about them being hurt, the only thing you can do is help me put your father away. You mean testify? With his gaze boring into her, he nodded. I do. Francesca! Papa yelled from the hall. She jerked as her whole body flooded with dread. Could he hear them talking? The pain in her shoulder was making her want to throw up again. Look at me, the agent said. Don't worry about him. Focus on me. I... Francesca, you betray me and you are dead. She couldn't move. She shouldn't have told them what happened. It wouldn't do any good. She was never going to escape Papa in his reach. The agent said, Francesca, you won't be able to protect me. he will kill all of us. You have to trust me. This is what we do. We keep people safe, people like you. Franny bit down on her back teeth. Because it serves your purpose. No, because it keeps guns out of the hands of kids trying to prove themselves by shooting other kids. It gets drugs off the streets, and it's going to keep your father's lieutenants from destroying any more lives. Maybe I'm not that honorable. She tried to be a good Catholic, but she was never going to be good. Franny would always be stained by who she was. The kitchen door whooshed again, and Mama and Izzy were ushered in by two agents. Special Agent Turner looked starstruck, even if he'd known who Mama was. That happened a lot when Mama entered a room. Franny knew why. She'd seen the movies Mama Mama starred in during the 60s and 70s. Mama had been all about bringing back the golden days of Hollywood, and she still dressed like a starlet. Mama froze. Oh, no. Mama, you take him down and we'll go with you, Francesca Canetti. You'll ruin all of us. Franny honestly didn't know what she was going to do. Mama was probably just worried about her big house and the credit card Papa gave her. All she did was troll high-end boutiques and take trips up to New York to buy even more stuff. Special Agent Turner said, All you've got to do is trust me. I'll keep you all safe. He really looked like he believed it. Your testimony could mean the difference between being free of this life and living forever under his thumb. Maybe I want this life, Franny lifted her chin. You don't know me. We've been watching you for weeks, Francesca, a girl who gives her lunch to the sixth grader who lives in a trailer with her druggy mom, and who volunteers in a rescue shelter and bakes cupcakes for the residents of a senior center, does not belong here. Her mom opened her mouth to say something, but Papa's shout cut her off. Francesca! She lifted her chin. Okay, I'll testify. That's a great beginning to uh, Lisa Phillips' book. And now Steve has a story for you.
0: B.D. Real also has a second book out in her series. It's called The Child of Deliverance Series. The book's titled The Heavens Are Telling. Here's from Chapter 1, August, Pattaya, Thailand. George Easton's breath came slow and deliberate. He practiced the breathing technique he'd been using for years to keep himself under control. He had planned his trip down to every detail. He told Nat- Nataya that he would come back for her that she should wait for him, and she would be his forever. Gage had not cleared the trip with his contacts and did not have permission from them to be in Thailand again so soon, but he didn't care. He siphoned money out of the foreign accounts to buy the plane ticket and found a cheap motel in Pattaya, one they didn't use. But Nataya wasn't waiting for him, not like she was supposed to be. He had been antsy as he readied himself earlier in the evening. He combed his hair parted on the side and slicked down, just like Natia had said she liked. He wore khaki shorts, his tropical print shirt, uh, silk shirt, the one she had admired just a month ago, tucked in at the waist. Gage strode down Walking Street, passing girls, calling out to him, smiling at him. They all wanted him, but he only wanted Natalia. He found the k- karaoke club where he had first met her. He knew that she would be in the back, waiting at the bar for him just like before. Other men wanted her, but she would wait for Gage, only for him. His heart pounded with memories of her, the way she danced, her eyes on his, begging for him to pick her. Natalia knew he could have any girl he wanted. He had taken a seat at the bar in the back and watched. He liked making her wait. The room was reserved for special clients, Those the owners knew were more sophisticated, more adapted to the special tourism opportunities of Thailand. He was one of the special ones. Gage had waited before. Uh, He gave in to the longing in her eyes. Her longing for him. He had enjoyed making her work for his attention. When he finally waved her over, she came running, anxious to be with him. They left quickly, and after their night together, she smiled at him, and asked if he would come back to the bar. He had fidgeted through meetings all day in, anticipating, in anticipation of meeting her. Again and again, for the next week of his business trip, he had returned and taken her with him. She had waited for him, been as anxious for him as he was for her. He had asked her to go home with him, but she, she said she would need time to prepare. Gage had promised to return, and now he had. There was a large crowd in the back this time. A party, maybe? He didn't like when others thought they were as important as he. Maybe the karaoke manager, Lock Lee, was running a special. Gage didn't like it. He spotted Natalia instantly. Her beautiful dark hair streaked with blonde and red highlights. Her lovely figure encased in the tight dress he had asked her to buy. It physically hurt to look upon her beauty. His body reacted instantly. He needed her. Gage took a trembling step toward Nataya, but stopped cold. Nataya wasn't waiting for him. She was standing close to another man, nodding as he spoke with her. Who does he think he is, talking to my girl? Gage shook with rage when the man grasped her elbow. He hated the thought of another man's hands on her and watched in fury as she was led to Lock Lee. The manager accepted a wad of bills that was stuffed in his hands and waved Natalia and the other man away. The slut. Gage's lips tightened, his cheeks burned, his anger had always blurred his vision red, and now the bar patrons blended together in a dizzying whir of disjointed activity. Gage tried to follow Natalia and the man, but the crowd was thick. The music was pounding so loudly it seemed to form an an impenetrable wall around him. Helpless to catch up, he watched as they slipped out through a back door and onto the street. Gone. Gage waited for them all night. At the bar, where girls he didn't care about tried to join him, he sat and stewed, swirling whiskey, at least he thought it was whiskey, round and round in his glass. Girl after girl approached him, asked him to play a game, offered to join him in a drink or dance for him. Couldn't they see that he didn't want them? He only wanted Nataya, his beautiful Nataya. His eyes blurred with angry tears. "'as he imagined her in his bed. "'Slut! How he hated her! How he wanted her! "'She had played him for a fool! "'No, it couldn't be true. She had wanted him. He knew it. "'She begged for him to come back for her. Hadn't she?' "'His mind grew fuzzy, and he shoved the glass across the sticky bar, "'pressing the heels of his hands into his eyes. "'The music pulsated around him, loud and intrusive. "'He felt a hand on his back.' knew it had to be Natia, and turned excitedly. But it was only one of the barmaids, an ugly one with crooked teeth and large, awkward breasts. He preferred Natia's delicate frame and straight white teeth. The girl leaned close. Why did they all want to be so close? And asked if he was having fun. He shook his head at her. He didn't want her. She looked to someone behind him, uncertain, and pressed against him. Annoyed, he stood and shoved her away, terrified that Nataya might return and see him with another woman. She would be jealous. Hey, 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 Lockley ran up to him and uh, yelling something in tie to the girl before he turned back to Gage. The girl scurried away. You want to get Roth, that extra, Lockley shouted. The small manager held out his hand, expecting Gage to pay. Gage shoved his hand away, ready to fight the man who had let his girl go, the one who had sent her away. When Lockley only snapped his fingers, Gage scoffed at him and turned to leave, ignoring his bill on the counter behind him. He wasn't paying for that lousy drink. The only way he would pay is if Natalia were returned to him. He whirled to face the manager, ready to squeeze Lockley's wiry throat until he told Gage where Natalia was. He paused when the crowd around him cleared away and three large men he hadn't noticed before surrounded him. Two grasped his elbows on each side while the other led the way out the back door. Gage instantly sobered and began to babble. Listen, guys, I've just had too much to drink. My girl left with someone else. She was supposed to wait for me. You can understand. No harm done, right? Nothing wrong. I'll just pay my tab and leave. The men led led him through a maze of "'Halls and doors, until they came to the alley behind the bar. "'One of them stepped forward and fumbled for Gage's wallet in his pants. "'That's right. Right there is my wallet. "'Take it and pay my tab, and I'll be on my way. "'No more trouble.' "'The man located his wallet and pocketed it in his own jeans. Gage opened his mouth to protest.' but an explosion of pain ricocheted off the side of his head. His body fell forward into a rivulet of sewer water next to the board that had just been cracked across his skull. They kicked at his ribs, stomped on his legs. One of them kicked his face. Darkness swirled in front of Gage's eyes while the men silently and meticulously searched his pockets, finding his hidden stash of prepaid credit cards and cash. They stripped him of his expensive watch and pocketed it, while Gage weakly twitched his fingers in pathetic protest. Just another night in paradise, mister. Next time, don't try to leave without paying your bill. Simon Russell rubbed the back of his neck, wincing as he hit a pinched nerve. He dropped his hand to his side and rolled his neck slowly in circles, hoping to ease the tension in his head and back. For five months, Simon had been on staff in Padaya, Thailand, with deliverance, an organization that rescued child slaves from walking street and placed them in safe homes to give them an education, a future, hope. He was in charge of maintenance and grounds for the Pattaya volunteer and staff dorms and worked long hours during the day to keep things running smoothly. For the last few weeks, he had volunteered in the evenings for a separate humanitarian group that acted as sort of an ambulance service for the tired, dirty nightlife of downtown Pattaya. Dozens of calls, from beat-up prostitutes to passed-out drunks to foolish tourists who wandered into the wrong alley, came through the night. Simon kept busy. But he gleaned valuable information from those that appreciated his help. He knew more people and had gathered more names and addresses of possible pimps and girls in slavery than Deliverance had been able to do in months of research. Simon had a way with people, and they easily opened up to him. Tonight, the radios were mostly quiet. He sat with another volunteer, Tori, a med student from Washington who worked in Thailand in the summer as an English teacher to help pay for college. When the teams weren't out on calls, they sat in a small area on the edge of Walking Street collecting donations for the gas they used to pick up patients. They also collected money for coffins. Simple pine boxes were stacked on top of one another against the building behind their table. Simon hated the sight of them hated more the reality that the dozens of coff- coffins stacked behind him Simon hated the sight of them hated more the reality that dozens of coffins stacked behind him would go fast over the next week there was such poverty and despair that when they found a dead body and no one claimed it they had to dispose of it themselves without knowing anything about the person who once lived Simon desperately wanted everyone, even the pimps and traffickers, to know about God and his saving grace. How different the world would be if everyone knew, if everyone believed. He knew that laws were easily broken, morals could not be legislated. The answer was to cut sin off at the source, to show the lost and weary and angry and bitter and broken that they needed the Lord. The desire to tell everyone burned in his chest so tight that he had moved to Thailand to face sin head on. To bring the light of Christ to the darkest place he could think of, the hub of sexual tourism. But that night, the fire felt cold inside him. He worked and lost sleep and posted to social media sites and sent out letters. Still, Western Christians very rarely understood how deep the pit that he faced each day. They could feed the homeless, host vacation Bible school, and attend Bible studies. All important. But where was the life-changing passion that the world needed? Where was the sacrificial love that they preached about? Simon ran his his hands through his hair. He was tired, irritable. He knew that in his exhaustion he was being unfair, that followers of God did their best. Not everyone felt the intense passion he did for the world around them. He knew believers who cared and did the best they could to love on neighbors and co-workers in the ways that God had called them to. He watched people passing him on walking street in droves. Partiers, vacationers, countless men who had come to be part of the tourism that Thailand was famous for. Lost. All lost. Some days the lack of sleep and the never-ending need to do something got to him. Lord, how can I reach them all? You tell us to go, to tell. I'm here, Lord. I'm here, and I'm telling. Please drown me out with your words, your voice, not mine. Please open their ears to hear. Tori's radio crackled and they both sat up to listen. It was Tori's last night before she flew home for fall semester and she was anxious to go out with a bang. They stood as an address was given and raced for the worn pickup truck that acted as their ambulance. Lance, another volunteer who drove the truck, met them there and briefed them. Pretty bad head injury. Sounds like paradise. Got a little too rough for this American perv, he said, climbing into the driver's seat. Tori and Simon shared a humorless laugh. When they located the man, passed out and bleeding from a gash on his head, Simon winced at the tropical print shirt and the package of condoms that had apparently fallen from the pocket when the man had been attacked and robbed. The cut on his head was bad, but would only require a few stitches. Tori would be disappointed. They didn't dare patch up Americans for fear of being sued. No matter that this guy would only need a few stitches and some serious aspirin. The Thai hospital would have to take care of him. Simon shook his head, leaning to help Lance lift the man into the bed of the truck. Sure makes you proud to be an American, doesn't it, Tori? Come on, let's get this lover boy patched up and on a one-way flight back to the land of the free.
3: Wow, another great beginning. All of these new releases can be found online. And um can be ordered at bookstores. Those titles, again, are Of Pirates and Werewolves by Isaiah Silkwood, our guest reader, Sanctuary Buried by Lisa Phillips, and The Heavens Are Telling by B.D. Reel. At the time of recording this podcast, several inches of snow blanket much of our country, and Thanksgiving vacation is quickly approaching. This is the perfect time to cozy up to the fire with a good book. Happy reading!
0: Thanks, Isaiah, Isaiah Silkwood, for reading your book, from your book. And uh, I want to tell you, too, that uh, BD Reel, that is R-I-E-H-L. So if you're looking for that, BD Reel, her book, The Child of Deliverance. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon best-selling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.